We're in chapter 38 of Job. The first two chapters are when the adversary comes to God and God's bragging about what a great person Job is. And the adversary says, yeah, but if you take away all the good things that are happening in his life, then he will not praise you. And so God says, I'll take that bet. So the adversary, or the Satan, the, the, the Satan, is, um, takes away Job's children, Job's flocks, Job's good health, and then um, Job is left in a very powerless position. But he feels like he's done the right things all along. And so that's what he's telling these three acquaintances. And then a fourth comes in who are saying, no, but you must have done something wrong. Something. And so they're full of questions and arguments all through the chapters 3 up through 37. And so Elihu is the last one who's been speaking and and accusing Job. You must have done something wrong. And after all this conversation and people really trying to figure out why there is evil in the world, why bad things happen to good people, God's been quiet. And here in chapter 38, God responds. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Skipping over several verses and multiple questions, we go back to God at verse 34. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings so that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to number the clouds or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods cling together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their covert? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? This is the word of the Lord. That sounds like a little bit of a question. Thanks be to God. Well, there's, there's plenty more in verse 39, and then we'll, um, we'll move forward to, towards the end of the book of Job next week. But right now, all we have is questions and answers that are unknown. There was a teacher who was helping a kindergarten student put on his cowboy boots, 
And even with her pulling and him pushing, the little boots didn't want to go on. And by the time they got the second boot on, she had worked up a sweat. And she almost cried when the little boy said, Teacher, they're on the wrong feet. And sure enough, they were. It wasn't any easier pulling off the shoes, the boots, as it was putting them on. But she managed to keep her cool as together they worked to get the boots back on, and this time on the right feet. And then he said, these aren't my boots. And she bit her tongue rather than get right in his face to scream, why didn't you say so? But she struggled to help him pull off the boots. No sooner had they gotten them off when he said, they're my mother's boots. My mom made me wear them. Now she didn't know whether to laugh or cry, but she mustered up the grace and courage she could to wrestle the boots back on his feet again. And so then, after the boots were on, she got his coat and helped him into that. And She said, now, where are your mittens? He said, I stuffed them in the toes of my boots. <laughs> you know, there are, are times when control seems to be simply a myth or a dream. Job thought he was in control. His flocks and his fields were supporting him well. His ten children had grown up and were enjoying their own lives. His health was good. He had a great reputation in the community because he was a man of integrity. And then everything changed quickly. Fairness and justice tell us that when we're living righteously, good things should come to us. And so when Job's children and livelihood and good health were suddenly taken away, Job's acquaintances presumed that Job must have done something to make God curse him. Job proclaimed and maintained his innocence. He had upheld all the laws. He was not to blame. He had maintained control even over his motives and did not deserve to be cursed. Something in the universe had gone awry, but it wasn't Job. Before the 1500s, the general belief was that the sun rotated around the earth. It appeared to move from the eastern sky in the morning across to the western sky and then descend below the horizon to circle the earth and come back up on the eastern side the next day. In the early half of the 16th century, Nicolaus Copernicus challenged this belief with his heliocentric theory. One assumption of this theory was that the center of the earth is not the center of the universe, but only of gravity and of the lunar sphere. Copernicus, as we might be, was hesitant to publish his theory for fear of the critiques even though he and some others believed it to be well-founded. And the repercussions of the publication were like a whirlwind that swirled in the waters of science and religion, but perhaps most importantly, in the human social mind. Earth, our earth, is not the center of the universe. Could that also mean that I am not the center of the universe? Out of another whirlwind, after 36 chapters of unanswered questions and accusations and silence, 
God speaks. God responds to Job's questions, not with the answers he was looking for, but with other questions, questions that reorient Job's universe. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the equator upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? A pastor announced to the congregation that he would be leaving their church And there was a good deal of crying, and there were lots of kind words. And one woman went to the pastor to express her sadness about his departure. And he consoled her with these generous words. He said, oh, don't feel bad. I'm sure our superintendent will come up with a much better replacement. And she looked at him, and she said, well, oh, that's what they said last time. In fact, that's what they say every time, but it never happens. We like to think of ourselves as the center of the universe. But God reminds Job and us that there are universal concerns greater than him, concerns that he cannot comprehend. Think about the gospel passage from Mark 10. To give you the context, following the teachings that Elizabeth Howell talked about last week, Jesus has taken the 12 apostles aside, apart from the crowd, his closest friends, and he tells them for the third time that he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. Here's what he says. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. And immediately then, our scripture is, after this third prediction of his suffering, death, and resurrection, James and John pull Jesus aside with a secret question. Well, more of a request at first. Will you do for us what we ask? Whatever we ask. Now, Jesus knows to be suspicious, as we would too. Jesus doesn't respond, for you, anything. Because he knows, James and John. What is it you want me to do for you, he says. And they boldly say to him, we want you to give us the seats of honor after you've suffered and been killed and are glorified. Oh, yeah. But Jesus says to them, okay, you will suffer too, but to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant. Even Jesus couldn't control everything. James and John wanted to be at the center of the universe too. But only one being controls such things. The same being who is praised in Psalm 104, from which our call to worship was taken. Here are a few of the verses from that psalm. 
It begins, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, wrapped in light as with a garment. You make the clouds your chariot. You ride on the wings of the wind. You make the winds your messengers, fire and flame your ministers. You set the earth on its foundations so that it shall never be shaken. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills, giving drink to every wild animal. You cause the grass to grow for the cattle and plants for people to use to bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the human heart, oil to make the face shine, and bread to strengthen the human heart. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. The children showed us something about praise this morning, didn't they? Praise is something we can control. We cannot control justice in the world. We're not even sure we can define justice. We can do it from a human standpoint, but our experiences and our wisdom are limited. God asks 60 questions in response to Job and his friends. And if they weren't rhetorical questions, Rhetorical questions, every one would require a humble, humble response. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? I wasn't. On what were its bases sunk? I don't know. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? No. Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? You do, God. It's not about us. It's not about our sense of control. It's about God. Last fall at age 24, Marley was excited to have started graduate school at Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond. And at the end of her first semester, she was in an auto accident on Interstate 81 and suffered a brain injury, which has totally changed her life. The control that she has over her life is different now. She has to strategize and plan each day so that she has an hour or two break between activities. Otherwise, her body and her head scream out to her to slow back down. It's a different kind of control. We have a level of control. We can control much of what we do. We can control our attitudes. We can control our responses. We can control our spending. We cannot control other people. We cannot control Jesus, and neither could the Romans. We cannot make God do our bidding. We cannot control exactly where we will be after this life. All of that is up to God. And when we feel out of control, and it was interesting because we were having a conversation in Sunday school today where Patrick was talking about 
when he listens to people and their concerns, that at the base of many of the concerns, it's powerlessness, which is really what Job is talking about. But we fall back on God. There's a great scene that my son showed me from a football game between the Philadelphia Eagles and the Dallas Cowboys two seasons ago. Michael Vick passes the football to Deshaun Jackson, who catches it near the Eagles' 20-yard line, and he takes off and he dodges Cowboys going all the way down the field, and then he stops inches away from the goal line, he turns 180 degrees, faces his own goal line, spreads his arms, and falls backward into the end zone and does a backward roll. And then he really celebrates. But I love the, the vision of him. He just spreads out his arm with the football in one hand, and he falls backwards. And what a great image that is for us about what we do when we fall backwards and surrender our balance and our whole selves into God. Can we trust God so completely that we fall into God's care? I don't want to suggest that it's unhealthy to ask questions. I think it's very healthy to ask questions and to be able to express our doubts and our anger and our frustration and our anxiety. However, it probably also helps us to know that sometimes there are no answers that we can comprehend now. I think that's one thing that Job, the book of Job, is trying to tell us. So we, we may not get the answers we want, and yet, yet it's still encouraging to see that Job does respond. I mean, sorry, that God does respond to Job. It doesn't just end with questions. God responds. God talks to Job. God assures Job of God's presence. Job has felt alone, but God pays attention to him. He is not alone. Think of the way, then, that God responds to you. God responds through the biblical stories, through the life of Jesus, through the good news that he brought of repentance and forgiveness and the openness of God to all. God responds to us through the Holy Spirit that guides our consciences and our actions Let us then stretch our our arms and fall backward into the control of one who loves and sacrifices for us so that with humility and gratitude, which we can control, we can sacrifice for each other.